Welcome everyone to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Talk Producer. I am Paul Neefe, your host. And today we're going to have a conversation with Owen Thompson. Uh, he is based in Minnesota and he is with uh, Compare Financial, but we'll, we'll go through all those details. So how are things going in Minnesota, Owen? They're going great, Paul. Thank you. Um, we've gotten some recent rain. So, uh, you know, there's been some dry spots around our loan service area. There still are, but uh, all in all, I think we're looking towards kind of a better harvest than maybe uh, we we're anticipating four to six weeks ago. So yeah, overall good. Yeah, I know, you know, early in the season, you know, at least through June and even early July, um, you know, one of the bad spots in the Corn Belt was that Southern Minnesota region, but it seems like uh, Mother Nature has uh, provided plenty of rain in the last, so what, four to six weeks, something like that? Absolutely, and um, especially with our soybeans, they always, the old adage, soybeans are made in August, so these rains that we've gotten here the last couple of weeks is really going to help this soybean crop. So all in all, maybe it's not a record harvest, but uh, hopefully at least a trend line yields. But again, the variability, who caught the rains, who did not, but, yeah. but things are looking positive. Well, I know, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I have some wheat ground in uh, southeastern Washington state, about a mile from where I grew up and, uh, and our yields what would do 140, 150, 160 bushels last year or more. Uh, this year, I, I don't think I've heard of any yields over 100. And I think my crop insurance payment this year is gonna be larger than the amount of uh, money I receive from the crop. So, and that typically doesn't happen out in that area, but this is the second of the last four years that it's happened. So uh, maybe, maybe there is climate change going on, but... Uh, I always like to start off with your background, so let's uh, let's go through where you grew up, went to college, uh, how you got started in your career, and all that good stuff. Uh, yes, I, I grew up on a dairy farm in west central Minnesota, again, taking you back to the late 70s, uh, early 80s. It was a, a 50 cow dairy uh, in, in Stearns County, which was kind of the heart of Minnesota, the dairy county for Minnesota. Um, you know, things have really changed uh, uh, since then. At that time, very, very labor-intensive type. I got to know what a wheelbarrow was, and um, at that time, square bales. I think the fact that Dad did some um, custom as far as we, we sold square bales, so we used to put up 25 to 30,000 square bales a year between the uh, hay and straw, so that was a good character building. Um, as, as I was growing up. And uh, like I say, every job seems a lot easier after that. Uh, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Um, from the dairy farm, I, I uh, went to college at the University of uh, Minnesota. At one point, I was thinking about going back to the dairy farm. But again, this was the heart of the financial crisis during the, the 80s. And we kind of determined probably not a good time to expand <laughs> um, at that point there. So um, uh, I, I actually started out on um, egg education major and um, I was a farm business management instructor and out in uh, Southwest Minnesota, um, you know, I guess was doing that, enjoyed, enjoyed the job. How I actually got into Compere was through a mutual um, uh, farm client that I was out there and um, uh, met the loan officer and we had some discussions. My wife was from, is from the city of Minneapolis. Um, we were in a very small town at that point there. She was looking at 
maybe a little larger, uh, move into a little larger uh, city and um, actually applied with a, a comp here or a predecessor at the time and um, moved into the underwriter role. So that's kind of how uh, the credit underwriting role was with farm credit. And um, from there, I've kind of just moved up in uh, different roles and um, currently I'm the VP of our credit egg lending for Compeer. So uh, our egg lending, you kind of think of that as our um, family farm. It's our largest uh, segment at, at Compeer. We have a little over 10 billion in, in loans and leases out to our clients in the egg lending portfolio. So um, that's yeah. kind of a, a, a brief of uh, you know, where I started and where I'm at right now was Compeer. Okay, so Compeer now, it hasn't always been known as Compeer. Um, go through the original history of what was before Compeer and then how Compeer came to be. Yeah, so uh, that can, well, we've, I've gone through it a few different, just gonna talk about the last one. And, in, in 2017, um, at that time, it was a uh, egg star um, in, in Badgerland, and then um, um, uh, Farm Credit of Illinois. Or, um, we came together and, and, and merged those three associations into um, Compeer. So that happened um, in July of uh, 17. So um, I guess we've uh, been six years past that. Merger. So right now, um, uh, Compeer stands a little over uh, 30 billion um, in in loan and lease assets. Um, we're the third largest uh, farm credit um, in the United States at the okay. present. And so your footprint would be not all of Minnesota, or all of Wisconsin, or all of Illinois. You know, the farm credit system sort of have territories. So what 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 is that footprint footprint in those three states? Yeah, great, great question, Paul. Uh, so we we serve 144 um, our, our our loan service area um, through Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Illinois. And kind of for a visual here, um, if you look at Minnesota and draw a line, we have um, all of the eastern half of Minnesota. If you kind of cut the state in half, and then we have those uh, those two southern tier of counties across all of Minnesota. And then with Wisconsin, we have um, that, that, that northeast quadrant of, of, of Wisconsin. And then with Illinois, uh, we have about half of Illinois. So we have the northern half of Illinois. So again, in total, that comprises 144 counties. Okay, okay. And then so your role at, at Compeer is sort of heading up the uh, overseeing the credit. So what exactly does that mean for the listeners out there when you're overseeing credit? What would be that role be? Yeah, so when you talk about overseeing, it's 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 the credit administration. So that what in that involves then is um, you know all of the uh, servicing, um, loan approvals. Uh, um, all of those things involved in, 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 in taking that loan request and, and, and getting it through and, um, and uh, with the approval process and, and, and booking that, that credit. So it's probably a real simplified uh, definition that I, that I gave you. It's a lot more than that, but it's, it's really that the entire 
credit administration from the beginning uh, to the end that that process there and um, providing guidance and, and, and philosophy um, helping set uh, policy um, uh, underwriting standards guidance um, all of those things that are involved in the, in the credit administration and I, I would think that technology has probably helped streamline some of that process. I, I know I'm guessing 15, 20, 30 years ago, all of that was sort of done by hand, maybe through a computer, but you had to do a lot of data input and so on. Has technology allowed you maybe on the smaller loans to make it much quicker, more smoother, and then on the larger loans, there's still a little bit more work involved, but uh, fill us in on, on that process. Absolutely. Um, it's uh, growing by leaps and bounds in that area there. We, we call it our, our, our scorecard process, um, quick, easy, and, and convenient. Um, you know, initially, I think we started probably back in 1997 in that area there, um, scorecarded, uh, you know, requests up to 50 and into 100,000. And right now, um, we're, we're scorecarding loans on the operating side up to 1 million and on the real estate side, up, up to two and a half million per, per loan request. Again, um, we, we capture some key data and, and run it through our, our data analytics and it arrives at a score. Um, just for kind of put it in perspective, our, our scorecard handles about, oh, I think we're at about 77% of our loan requests by number, not by volume. Um, but by numbers. So um, we've created great efficiencies there, uh, you know, through the years and um, actually looking at, again, leveraging our data, data analytics and, and, and trying to continue to grow that uh, number um, even more yet. What we're really trying to do, Paul, is um, we talk about probability of default that's assigned to each loan request, um, depending upon its financial characteristics. and. Um, really trying to score what I'd say are our strong or no-brainer type loan requests through the scorecard and only get those loan requests that need human intervention and that's where they uh, you know that we have actually a team member taking a look at that from the credit side again we're still um, capturing financial information putting it into our system completing credit reviews but the actual loan request, loan application, I'm really trying to leverage that scorecard when we can to create efficiencies for our for, for our clients who, who who again own own comp here. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting. You know, on the farm, let's let's take the dairy or even a row crop farm. It's it's hard to get the right labor, get good labor, and I think. At the banking system, I know I've talked to other bankers, both farm credit based and, and commercial bankers, just finding somebody that can you know, be in that credit analysis role has been extremely difficult. Or do you see the same thing inside of Compere? Uh, absolutely. I'll, I'll probably start out, you know, we really look for the individual. Um, what we talked about is the, the team relationship model how we can add value to that relationship with that client. How can we add value? You know, uh, the money's green all over, but how, how can we add value to that relationship? And part of that involves, you know, 
um, getting in that, that credit expertise um, w when needed to help add value to that relationship. And a lot of that involves, you know, meeting that client at their place of business. Um, we're, we're typically meeting that client um, out, out at the farm or their, their, their business. Um, not a lot of walk-in traffic anymore. And um, to really help understand their operation, I think it's essential that we have both the financial um, officer and the, and the credit underwriter out there on those accounts that are needed to, to create that dialogue um, with that client. So then when we're looking back to the original question about you know uh, recruiting, we're looking for a team member that um, has um, you know a mix of, of not only the analytical but but the uh, the, the people skills to, to better fit that team relationship um, model. So you know we have a credit underwriter from various uh, degrees. Um, I always say um, you know we're going to train them for what we need um, as long as they have the uh, the passion um, is really what it's all about that they have the passion for that job and we can simply teach them to be the blueberry expert in about six months if that's all they concentrate on. Um, so it's, it really gets back to that that passion and that desire. Yeah, I, I, I know when, you know, when I was with CLA or even before CLA, uh, you know, if I found a farm kid that had a passion for numbers, uh, they would end up being pretty good CPAs because they already had the work ethic. I mean, uh, you know, working yeah. 50, 55 hours a week in taxis and, you know, that's, uh, you know, half the time they say, is that all? Now, maybe the newer generation, maybe not so much, but uh, uh, certainly that that was always something that I found to be true. So um, are you seeing any negative impacts from, or I, I know we have negative impacts from the increases in interest rates, but are, are you seeing it affect your customer base yet? Uh, yeah, it, um, you know, it, it, it's going to start and we're, where it really starts here is, um, you know, if we go back a little bit in the interest rate environment, we were at um, historic lows for um, what I would consider a, a number of years, you know, uh, coming out of college there, we had that environment of interest rates in the 80s of, of 18%. And I think my first car loan was 12%. Um, my my first home loan was um, over uh, over 8%. And then it's just drop from there. And um, so, um, you know, everyone's enjoyed some very, very low, low, low interest rates. Um, you know, you think about the real estate side, um, you know, many of our clients have long-term rates. I'm locked in that three, four, four 4% area. And, um, you know, right now you can basically say that those, those rates have uh, doubled depending upon the, the financial uh, product. So where, where that affects it again, as you mentioned, Paul, is, you know, any um, uh, new financial needs that that client has here uh, moving forward. And um, just like kind of what we're seeing out in the <laughs> uh, industry out there, as far as the home mortgage industry, um, those homeowners don't want to give up that that 3% loan right now and, and, and buy another place and, and go to a, a seven or 7% uh, rate. Um, you know, we do have some options as far as in, in that area there of, um, you know, utilizing uh you know various resources that where they might not uh, might be able to keep some of those rates as far as 
collateral swaps and, and, and things like that. But, um, you know, it, moving forward there, it, you know, it is going to start making an impact. And I, if you and I had a crystal ball, I don't know how long this interest rate environment is going to last. Um, I, I'm guessing it might be here for, for, for uh, a, a period of time at, at least. Many might even say, well, these interest rates probably long-term need to be maybe at this area or, or slightly below, but um, it's all about how we're going to battle uh, inflation now and, and what the Fed is going to do on the interest yeah, rate I, side I, of things. I, but, um, yeah, I think if you look at the historical, you know, let's ignore the, the 1980s, let's ignore the last 12, 13, 14 years since 08. You know, if you went back and looked at long-term interest rates over that maybe the other 50 of the last 75 years, you know, where they're at right now is actually about average rates. You know, these are not high rates compared to historical average. It's just high rates compared to the recency bias of the last 15 years. No, absolutely. And um, the, the good thing um, going in, you know, there's uh, there might be some storm clouds um, out in the horizon. Um, certainly that's true already in, in that the dairy and, and, and swine um, sectors there, um, you know, those, those two, have, uh, especially the swine, well, both swine and dairy, but swine, it's been, you know, a combination of a very high input costs and uh, on the supply demand equation, you know, that, uh, you know, the price is received, um, it, it's, it's been some fairly significant losses um, per head in the dairy, I think, you know, we have mailbox prices of um, for a while they're less than 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 twelve dollars a hundredweight on that mailbox price. So, uh, you know, those two industries already are are um, you know facing some challenges here. The good thing is that they both go into it with uh, the old adage, "cash is king." Um, you know, working capital. Um, in fact, our dairy portfolio. Uh, I think we enjoyed the the probably the strongest return um, per head, profit per head last year in, in 2022, our benchmark information. So um, they significantly had some cash as, as they encountered these rougher waters here. And on the grain side, all what we're really competing against here is, is cash out there in the marketplace. Um, again, our benchmark information that we have, uh, 21 and 22 were record uh, profits per acre on, on the green side and uh, um, 23 there's a lot to play out yet but um, for example our average producer in our benchmark has a uh, 300 and excuse me $750 of working capital per acre right now at, at, at um, year end and um, I think I, we have about 357 net profit per acre from 2022 and that includes the labor and management charge. So yeah. going into this period here, you know, at, at very strong levels, which is really going to help. Well, and I think uh, the, the nice thing for this year, if you want to call it nice, is we have a pretty high floor with crop insurance. You know, if you had the 85, 85% yeah. level, you know, you're locking in about a roughly $5 price on corn and, uh, soybeans you know you start locking in a pretty good profit i know out in my area on my wheat crop which again we had a drought this year you know i'm, I'm still getting the equivalent of you know the the, the base price was almost ten dollars a bushel 
the current harvest price right now is slightly under seven dollars plus the reduction in yield you know I, I think i'm estimating my crop insurance payment will be greater than my crop payments so uh, uh you know I, I think that helps this year now next year you know you're, you're potentially that that base price is going to be much lower but we're also seeing lower fertilizer pricing and, and so on so that may help offset the, the 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 margin compression there a little bit no absolutely as you alluded to um kind of use the adage um with, with with crop insurance it's really a competitive advantage and um you know, with proper risk mitigators, we kind of joke, you, you can't lose the farm in a year with, with crop insurance. Um, I, I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but uh, that, that really is a competitive advantage that our grain producers um, enjoy there with, with that crop insurance. And as you mentioned, that, that, that put, that floor that it kind of gets put in and then if they market, utilizing that then to give them the confidence to market up and up into their guarantees to kind of capture some of the volatility that we've experienced here yeah. <laughs> over the summer. And, um, but now, yeah, you look at the futures, especially in, in, in 2024 right now, you know, it's kind of setting up the USDA is, uh, you know, on, on their forecast here, uh, we're probably going to have to figure out how, how to produce corn for uh, less than $5 a bushel, yeah. you know, moving yeah. forward yeah. here. Again, that can all change, but, um, that's kind of how it's aligning right now. Well, and these things always go in cycles. And, you know, I always cringe sometimes when I hear people say, you know, $5 is the new floor. Well, no, that's that may or not be true. So uh, uh, but we'll see what happens. Now, it's a little bit unique. Compere is part of the farm credit system and you operate as a as a cooperative. So typically you're going to pay out some type of patrogen or at least the, the the cooperatives or the farm credit systems i've been involved in they do that is that that's is that something that compure normally does and if so how does that work yeah no a absolutely um uh, it, uh you know from our net earnings um we uh, allocate a, a certain percent of that and every year it's set by the board as far as that that net earnings what is paying back in um patronage so um um you know typically it's uh you know a portion is a return to capital with the rest of it going out um in an actual patronage i've got to do a numbers check here i should know this but in, in 2022 i think we paid out um our net earnings was about 450 million i don't have the number right off the top of my head how much of that went exactly out in patronage again but um, um a, a, a good portion of that goes out every year back to the client is that typically like on a loan would that be 100 basis points 75 basis points or uh what what would be the typical i, I know the loans i've had it's been in that one percent range which is 100 basis points so i wasn't sure if yours is similar to that Right, Paul. I think we're we're very similar. I got to be a little careful on that. You know, the fluctuations every year, but I think yep. that's a fairly safe number to use as far as those basis points somewhere in that range there. So, so, it, so it, it really I, helps on that part. I'm doing a good job of getting Owen onto a slippery slope here. So I'll I'll I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> yes. get you off the ledge. How does that sound? So <laughs> I'd welcome that. Yes. <laughs> okay.
Well, Owen, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break for a sponsor message, and then we'll come back. And uh, I always have three or four questions I ask at the end, and we'll go through those, and then uh, I'll let you get back to your, to your work. How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years? Ten years? Top producers like Hans Reinchi of Blue Diamond Farming Company in Jessup, Iowa, know Robo Agri Finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Robo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers, and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance. Robo Agri Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, Robo Agri Finance. everyone back to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm Paul Neeker, your host, and we're going to go ahead and rejoin our conversation with Owen Thompson. So, you know, Owen, we went through your role and and how interest rates are affecting farmers, and we're coming to the end of the podcast, and I always have three or four questions I like to ask. So the first one, uh, who was your mentor uh, in your career? Who, Who, and it could be more than one person, it might not even be somebody in the banking business. So who, who do you think your, your mentors were? Well, actually, uh, this might seem a little odd, but I, I really look at um, a life mentor. And, and my life mentor was actually my grandmother. Uh, she, she really, uh, as, um, you know, the, the value of hard work, um, you know, working through tough times. Uh, she was born and lost her dad in, in the Depression there and um, worked through that and lost her husband. Um, at a at a very early age, and um, but she always remained um, very positive, hardworking in that spirit. Um, really, uh, she she gave more than she took, and I really um, I always say if I could be half the person that my grandmother was, um, I, I, I would have I'd call it success in life. So that's kind of really what I consider my who my life mentor is, and kind of. My, my, my moral compass and, and, and how I want to, you know, lead my life. Um, and then there's been, you know, numerous, um, you know, mentors uh, through the time at, at work there. And, um, you know, I think the biggest quality I look for them is, um, you know, their ability to coach, um, uh, uh, you know, they, they certainly weren't micromanagers, um, really gave me the opportunity opportunity, um, you know, to at sometimes to go out on a limb, um, um, lead certain projects, but at the same time provide some some guidance, but really presented opportunities for growth. And they were constantly challenging me to get to get better every day. And, uh, you know, really, really appreciate um, those mentors that I've had um, throughout my career that have gotten me to the point where I'm at today. Okay. And I really try to give back in that role in my position, you know, as I look at, you know, how do I want to, as far as giving back and, uh, you know, in the employment side here with how I look at my team members, it's my job to get them to that next level. 
And um, I, I really take that seriously and um, really key in on their personal development. Good, good. And then uh, do you have any time for hobbies? Uh, I know you and I, we've played golf a few times. Uh, I wouldn't say either of us are going to go on the pro tour, but, uh, uh, but we do like to play golf. But uh, what are your hobbies? Uh, yes, you, you're right on. Um, um, golfing is one of them. And, and, and Paul, is that is that what they call a definition of insanity that you keep doing it over and over and you expect different results? And it seems like yeah. I, I don't get those different results, but I keep on doing it. So um, um, but besides uh, golf, you know, growing up in Minnesota, uh, you've got to appreciate the four seasons or you're not going to enjoy Minnesota. And I really uh, enjoy the outdoors um, besides golf. Um, I'm an avid uh, uh, pheasant hunter, deer hunter, all of those outdoor activities. And then in the winter, Paul, I've got to get you up here to Minnesota and ice fish. So um, take you out on the ice and uh, drill a hole and, and look through that hole and say, hey, this is fun, you know, sitting you out know, here in, in 10 below weather. But I, I, I may I may take you up on that now that I'm, quote, uh, semi-retired, which means I still work, you know, 2,000 hours a year, whatever it might be, but uh, I do have some extra time. So uh, uh, now, you know, does this involve me? Do I have to do anything special for ice fishing? Uh, I guess for the listeners out there that don't get that, uh, what, what's involved with ice fishing? Let's, let's, let's review that for a few minutes. Yeah, you know, um, it goes back into a uh, it was the uh, Minnesota and the cold, um, believe it or not, um, you know, this ice starting in early December typically, it depends on but you're going to start that ice for me. And, and typically, you know, foot traffic, you can get on the ice, they recommend it at, at, at six inches. So early in the season, you, you get these people out there just walking, but then as that ice gets thicker, um, that's when the, the vehicle traffic starts and they have these beautiful ice houses now all oh, you can spend up to 50 60,000 on these ice houses now and have um, all the comforts of home right there on on the ice but uh, no where I'm at uh, we get ice thickness of um, over over two feet 24 to 36 inches by the end of the year so um, um, your only ability is I guess because uh, you know you, you drill that hole and um, and it depends if you're in a house, uh, once you drill that hole, you're, you're staying there. If you're uh, more mobile, you can continue drilling and try to pattern the fish. But usually you try to set up where some active fish are and um, then it turns into a waiting game. And then at that point, that's if we're, you're with others, you're trying to solve all the world's problems and maybe even enjoying <laughs> a, a beverage or two at the same time. So how 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 big of a hole do you typically drill into the ice? Is it a foot wide, two feet wide? How how big of a hole would you drill? Yeah, so uh, the ice augers go from typically uh, six to ten inches. So okay. um, you know, again, the more the, the larger the the drill, the the more power it takes. But um, you know, with the panfish, you only need probably a, a six inch wide hole if you're going for the walleye, the northern. You know, probably a a larger a larger hole. So on the panfish, is that they're typically more at the surface than the the northern pike and so on, or deeper, or does that matter in the winter time? I'm just curious on that. 
Yeah, you know, uh, when that ice um, first forms, uh, they're, they're probably in more shallow water. And then as the, the uh, winter progresses, the oxygen levels, they tend to move to uh, uh, deeper water. You know, for crappies, for example, they're t typically in deeper holes. Um, you might be fishing in 30 feet of water and crappies typically are suspended and they might be uh, 20 feet down. Um, okay. So it, it kind of goes with uh, the, the time of the year, but um, th they do move just to like kind of summer fishing patterns. So. Okay. Well, and then uh, is there anything that keeps you up at night? You know, I've, I've tried as I moved on in my career. Um, I only worry about things that, that you can control. And uh, so I, I really try to live, live by that. And, and on the professional side at Compere, you know, it's it's pretty simple on on my attitude there. I I uh, go back to the the team concept there, and a um, engaged team is a high highly performing team. So if you've got a engaged team, um, well trained, you're challenging them. They're looking for opportunities. You know, uh, you, you're in good shape because, as you mentioned earlier, Paul, we're always going to have those credit cycles. You know, right now we're in a very, very good credit cycle. You know, it, we're, we're expecting at some point we're, we're moving to a more challenging cycle there. But as long as we've got a highly engaged, motivated team, um, we're going to be able to, to face the challenges um, ahead of us. So I, I try to just kind of live by that that simple premise. And then I give my wife all the other things as far as, you know, what she needs to worry about at night as she goes to sleep. And uh, that, <laughs> that way I can sleep just fine at night. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, finally, what's what's your definition of success, either in banking or farming or, or in business in general? You know, that's a that's a great question, and I'll, I'll probably go back to maybe um, what I use as far as my my life mentor, my grandmother, and really, um, what is the impact or the footprint that you're going to leave, um, not only in your family, but in your community. And, um, you know, when I think back about, you know, my parents growing up on the farm, my, my, my siblings, um, it really instilled the, the love of rural America. That's why I work um, for Compere. I, I love rural America. You know, we lend into rural America. We're out there serving rural America. We want to increase that rural vitality. And, um, you know, I think of all my siblings, they're all living in rural America yet. So I think my parents really instilled that love of rural America. We have a few of us are, are still heavily involved in, um, in agriculture. But, um, you know, I think it goes back, everyone has maybe a little bit different success, but it's, you know, the impact that, that you are leaving in, in your family, your community. How are you telling the story? How are you helping promote um, rural America and, and maintaining that and increasing that rural vitality and, and, and giving back, uh, giving yeah. more than taking. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Totally, totally agree with that, Owen. Is there anything else you'd like to add before I let you go? No, appreciate the opportunity to visit with you today, Paul, and, and hopefully at some point here in the future, we can kind of chase that little white ball around and continue our uh, insanity problem that we have in golf so uh, I, I think we will and maybe I'll join you uh, trying to catch that little fish under some ice
I, I would appreciate that. That that would be a, a good experience for you. And, uh, you know, we'll try to figure out a time when we can maybe get weather that's 20 below so you can experience that part of it also and, and get well, the, what I'd call a full meal deal. So Okay, so that's your full meal deal. So my full meal deal for you, Owen, is I'll take you out to the Pacific Northwest. I'll get you on a combine and slide you down the hill. How does that sound? <laughs> And I better bring an extra pair of clothes, huh? Yeah, exactly. Well, well again, thanks a lot, Owen. And this is the uh, Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. And this is uh, Paul Neefe, your host, signing off.